Yeah, this evening we are going to turn to Nehemiah 7. And it's been a while since we've been in Nehemiah, uh, since the end of April, really, um, or the end of March, sorry, when we finished chapter 6. Uh, and so we turn tonight to chapter 7. And we have been in this, this great Old Testament book since the end of January. Uh, as I say, it's been a little bit of a break, but we broke at the end of March with the end of chapter 6. Um, and we read there at the end of chapter 6 that the walls of Jerusalem were completed, that the city was made safe. Uh, and that moment, um, it felt significant as we m- marched into that, um, into that at the end of the, end of the month. Uh, and it rightly is, of course, it, it's this pivot point in the story. Um, for those of you who've been following this series, it seems like the rebuilding of the walls was a major, major deal. That was, it, for a lot of people, it's what comes to mind when they think of the book of Nehemiah, that this is a book about the rebuilding of the walls. Um, but actually, this book, as we've said so many times, is about so much more than just rebuilding walls. Um, now, the walls are, of course, part of what God is doing among his people, but it is not the only thing that he's doing. He is rebuilding and restoring, as we've said, and some of the physical infrastructure is part of that rebuilding and restoring. Um, but the second half of the book uh, delves deeper into the inner workings that God is doing, how he is rebuilding and restoring his people. We've used the phrase that he is rebuilding and restoring his people in his place for his purpose. And the second half of the book really hones in on that inner work that's going on. Uh, so walls have finished in, in chapter six. That's as if it's phase one of the project is complete, but there's still six chapters left. And so clearly God hasn't finished with his people. Um, it's not all about those walls. And we'll see chapter seven tonight. And then just to, to give you a snapshot of the rest of the book and how it does drill down into the, the rebuilding and restoring of the people. Chapter eight, we'll see on Sunday morning with Dave Dunlop from Windsor Baptist. Um, chapter eight is how the law is reread and rediscovered for the people. Chapter nine shows the people confessing in light of the law that has been read to them. Chapter 10, they recommit themselves to the covenant with God, which is expressed through obedience to the law. That's what covenant obedience looks like. Uh, then some of the people, um, some more of the people move into the city of Jerusalem in chapter 11. They dedicate the walls in chapter 12. And some time passes then between the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13. And in that intervening period, uh, the people's faithfulness to God wanes. And Nehemiah heads back actually to, uh, to be with the Persian king for a time. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he then brings about this reform and correcting the people's unfaithfulness. And so all of that is yet to come. Uh, and it shows that, that the second half of this book, which launches here from chapter 7, it shows a focus on the people's relationship with God uh, and their worship of their God. How he is indeed continuing to rebuild and restore his people in his place for his purposes. Uh, and so as we look at chapter 7 tonight, well, let, let's consider what, what is God saying to us through this, this text, uh, which is about two and a half thousand years after these events took place. What does God's good and constant and eternal word have to say to us? Well, if you've got chapter 7 there, even as you look through it, uh, depending on how your Bible lays it out, um, it might look like a giant list of names and numbers and places. And it's a little bit like we encountered something similar to that in chapter 3. Uh, and back in chapter 3, we recognise the difficulty that we sometimes have with passages of scripture like this. Uh, we see names and, and places that are unfamiliar or difficult to pronounce. Um, but we must always remember that even this detail is still God's word. Uh, it's still as much God's word as some of our, what we may call our favourite passages. This is still as inspired and as useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So, we, we will read through part of chapter 7. We're not going to read it all, uh, but we will read a few verses from it. And we'll focus primarily on the first five verses, actually, um, just for our time together this evening. 
And, and what we we'll want to do as we read through this is now that the people, the, the wall has been completed and the, the place, the physical place of Jerusalem is now going to become this centre point for God's work in his people, the inner work in his people. And so as the people move back into Jerusalem, as they recenter their lives on him, what are some of the priorities that God instills for his people? And we see some of that starting here in chapter 7. So we'll think about some of the priorities that we see through the first uh, five verses particularly. There are a few extras Uh, A few extra priorities towards the end of the chapter, but we'll not have time to pick those up tonight. We'll just think about the first five verses. Let me read um, the first seven verses-ish, and then we'll skip to the end. Uh, And as we get to verse six, from verse six right through to verse 73, it's almost an exact replica of a list that we see back in Ezra 2. And that's because Nehemiah finds the record of those who came in the first journey back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, and he repeats it here. And so if you're reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, then you'll notice a lot of the similarities in these two lists. And um, I, I actually, the, the majority of the rest of the chapter right through to verse 73 uh, is, is a record taken from Ezra's account as well. But let's read uh, the, start of verse, the start of chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return. And this is what I found written there. And then we have that list repeated from Ezra 2. If you could skip over to verse 70 and we'll just finish off the chapter. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand darics of gold. 50 bowls and 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 darics of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 minas of silver and 67 garments for the priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the temple servants, along with certain of of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. And so at the end there, the very end, we see some of the priorities as a result of what we'll see in in a second from the first five chapters. When the people came back to Jerusalem, they were giving, they were sacrificial, they were worshipful, and that played itself out in some of those uh, very obvious ways. But the first five verses, I think, show us at least three priorities that God had for his people that they live out. And the three things that we're going to look at are worship from verse one. That is a priority. Leadership in verse two. And then attentiveness to God's voice in verse 5. And so as these people are resettling in Jerusalem, three, at least three of the priorities that we see here from these first five verses are worship, leadership, godly leadership, and attentiveness to God's voice. And so let's think firstly about, lead, about worship. In, in the first verse, we see, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. And so here we have some of the first steps that are being taken after the walls have been completed. Obviously, the gates need to be kept and protected, so the gatekeepers are appointed. Uh, and, and I think that there would be an element of security and watchfulness in that, yes. 
Uh, some people also suggest that there's an element that the gatekeepers were, were like the first line of defence against anyone who would come into the city, whether that is someone who wants to come and rob the place or even someone who wants to come and bring some moral compromise or spiritual compromise. The gatekeepers had a, had a spiritual role to play as well as a physical one. But certainly we see the spiritual life coming through when we hear of the Levites and the priests. And this is a, a city that is now going to have an emphasis on worshipping God. That's what the Levites and the priests were there to do. That was their role. And so in verse 1, we see the musicians and the Levites, or the singers and the Levites, were appointed. Uh, and among the role of, among other things, sorry, the role of the, the musicians, the singers, the Levites, was to lead the communal worship of the people. We'll meet the Levites more in chapter 8, where we see them helping to explain and helping the people to understand the word and the law of God. They are, they are helping to nurture the people's faith in God. They, they want to help people grasp the implication of God's word. They're helping people to worship. And then, of course, the musicians and the singers, we assume that they are also involved in this worshipful, sung worship, musical worship to God. And, and we know from the rest of the story and from all of God's word that the people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, were known for their songs their songs of joy. We read actually in Psalm 137 how their songs went silent when they went into Babylon. In Psalm 137 verse 4 we read, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors, there our captors, is it the Babylonians who captured them originally, asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But of course, the people said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And now the people are back in Jerusalem and how they're going to sing. I mean, we know that sense, don't we? From two years of not being able to with COVID. And then I heard Michael on Sunday morning say that the, the, the joy of singing with God's people, expressing our praise and our thanks to God. And of course, we know that musical worship is one form of worship. But how great it is to sing the songs that, that inspire our hearts with God's truth. That put words to our praise and our joy that we can't sometimes fathom ourselves. And so we see here for the people regathering in Jerusalem, worship is a priority. But, but why is worship so important? Why is that such a big deal? Well, well, one commentator I find very helpful and challenging even as they said this. That when the people went to the temple... Their minds were lifted above those mundane issues which had dominated their minds throughout another week. As they worshipped together, they could reflect on the meaning of life, the confidence of faith, the assurance of forgiveness, the primacy of love, the guarantee of strength, the horizons of hope. All these are treasures not available for purchase in Jerusalem's marketplaces, but in the temple their reality was confirmed. That is why the worship of God was Israel's highest ideal. Without it, they were reduced to the values of the godless. Nehemiah appointed the temple singers so that the praise of their generous and unfailing God might have the highest possible priority within Israel's community life. That's why worship is important. It's not about us and how much we enjoy it, even though many of us do. It is about giving God his place, refocusing and re-perspectivizing ourselves on him. Seeing his truth and declaring that truth with our mouths. mouths. And sometimes I know that, that we need to declare that truth with our mouths so that our hearts can grasp it. I don't know if you've ever found that in worship, that you find yourself singing what you know to be true. And in the act of singing and declaring it out, your heart is raised by the reality and the wonder of the truth that you're proclaiming. 
And so isn't this priority of worship the same for us as we gather? Isn't it one of the things that we missed so much during lockdown? Well, it's because we missed it because as God's people, we are intended to worship. And musically and sung is one of the ways in which we do that corporately as we gather. Um, and as we do that, just like the, this commentator had said, it's not as if we, we flippantly pretend that the issues we carry in with us on a Sunday morning, we just leave them in the car and forget about them and they don't really matter when we're in here. No, it's, they matter when we're here, but they matter not anywhere near as much as our God deserves praise. Whatever it is we're going through, our God deserves praise. And as we focus on him and who he is and what he's doing, then the issues that we're carrying with us are put in the right place. And that could be difficult as those, as those issues are, are reorientated in our hearts. We can feel the tug of those, those things that we know we want to hang on to, we want to gain control of. And the Lord is saying, no, give them to me. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. And we say, no, Lord, but I know how I want this to work out. And look, give them to me. Remember who he is. Praise him and worship him as the rightful king on the throne. And so priority one, I think, for these people and indeed for us, is we worship. And we worship not because of where we are or who we are. We worship because of who we worship. Because our God constantly and always and diligently deserves that worship. The second thing we see here in Nehemiah 7, and and the second and third points actually run from this and are are much more succinct. The second is leadership. In verse 2, we see this wonderful example of godly leadership. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani. Now, we met Hanani. He was the one way back in chapter 1 who brought the report to Nehemiah while he was still in Susa to say the walls of Jerusalem are in bits. Nehemiah, this is a mess. Uh, And here we have Hanani still with his brother serving. So he he sets uh, Hanani in a position along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. And this is why. Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I mean, if there's ever anything you want on your, on your gravestone, if there's any, ever, anything you want to be written over your life for people to think of you, what a wonderful thing for someone to say of you. That you're a person of integrity who feared God more than most people do. And there's a lot that, that we could say and we could delve into about that. I would, I would encourage you before the Lord to search your heart with him and say, Lord, would you make me a person of integrity who fears you more than most? But equally, what I find intriguing here is that when Nehemiah was putting people into positions of godly leadership, it wasn't anything. About, they weren't commended for their skill, for their experience. They were commended for their character. And if we fast forward into the church throughout the New Testament, particularly 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, where we see those qualifications for elders and deacons. It's, it's all about character. It's all about how these people love Jesus, live for him, live that life of integrity. And ultimately, that is the life that is living with the attitude of worship that we've just discussed. That when God is our priority, then he will mold and shape our character. And for some, that will mean a position that comes with that, that God calls someone into a role. Not everybody will be in that role. That's not what it's about. But as an encouragement for us as a church, as we continue to pray for the leaders that God has placed over us here, as we continue to look around for who God may be raising up to serve us here, serve him by serving us here, then let's remember it's always about character. And so can I implore you, if you see any of us, particularly speaking as an elder, 
If you see anything within us where our gifting and our skill set might be lacking, then be patient, be gracious. But if you ever see a hint where our characters are slipping, that is something that as a, as a brother and sister in Christ, we need you to come and say, hang on, you are lording your authority over us. You are not using your position wisely. Because speaking on behalf of the elders and deacons, having not asked their permission, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this is true, that, that, that we want to be men of integrity who fear God more than most people do. And of course we want that for all of us. But I'm saying as we consider, as a local church family here, as we consider those who God puts in leadership and roles of authority over us under him, of course, let's never forget that it's about character. It's not about skill or gift. So worship, leadership. The third thing then from verse five is something we've seen again from chapter two in Nehemiah. Nehemiah just exemplifies this so much and it's attentiveness to God's promptings and leadings. So verse five, he says, so my God put it into my heart. And he, and he does what God puts into his heart. It's a wonderful phrase. As I said, we saw it in chapter two when we saw that it was the Lord who put it on his heart to go and build the walls. Nehemiah is living his life in response to the promptings of God. And I imagine there's, there's many of us um, that if we're honest, maybe we, we, we look at something like this with someone who, who embodies this level of insight and discernment and, and spiritual nights. And, and we long for that in our own lives. <laughs> maybe we even get, um, it, I don't think you can be rightly jealous, but you know what I mean? We, we, we long for that level of character in our own lives. The, the, to walk so closely with God that we know his leading, we sense his promptings. But, but this is not some kind of ethereal state for the super holy. This is what God invites us all to. That as, as believers in him, as those committed to him, having repented of our, of our sin and trusting in him for salvation, living our lives in obedience to him, then we are united with Christ. He has given us his spirit indwelling within us to live and to know his voice. He's given us his word and how accessible his word is for us, yet how lightly we treat it sometimes. And so I know that for me, certainly there are times when I long for clarity from what God might want for us. He's given it to us. All that we need for life and godliness is found in his word. And so this example of Nehemiah is not something that's out there for someone else to aspire to. No, this is the light. This is what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. That we know and we prioritize his voice above all others. And I think Michael has been so helpful in bringing the, these, the word of God from Haggai these weeks. That's what's been striking me as that the Lord speaks and will his people listen? Or are we too busy with it? Lots of other things, some of which might seem very good and important. But what's our priority on? It seems from Nehemiah's story, from the people of Israel, indeed from all of scripture, that God calls his people to seek him first. Matthew 6.33 says exactly that, that we seek first his kingdom. And all those other things will be given to us as well. All those things we worry about. So we, we long to know him. We search for him. N not searching as someone who, who kind of grapples around in the dark for a light switch. Um, no, he's not unknowable. God has made himself known. He has revealed himself to us. But, but he calls us to invest the time, the effort, the priority in seeking him first. Well, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 are, are verses from Holiday Bible Club last year that we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge him 
and he will make our paths straight. And so let's, let's be attentive to his voice. We know from John's gospel when Jesus teaches about the, how he is the good shepherd. Well, he is the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. And how do they know his voice? Well, they listen and they turn attentively and intentionally to him. So these are at least three of the priorities that I think we see as the people of Jerusalem head back to their city. And I think that these are the three things that God would still have us as his people in Gilnahirk to prioritize worship, godly leadership, and attentiveness to his voice. And may that be what goes on here in each of our own hearts individually and therefore corporately when we gather. May we know him. May we seek first his kingdom. May we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, leaning not on our own understanding, in all our ways submitting to him so that he will make our path straight. Our God is good. He is not hidden. He is knowable. And so let's come to this wonderful God, giving him the worship that he deserves because he alone is worthy of it. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that even in this chapter, which as we glance over it, it may, it may strike fear in us, it may strike confusion in us, but thank you, God, that in your inspired word, you have much to teach us. And so we thank you for uh, this example that we see here in Nehemiah 7, that as the people of Jerusalem were regathering in, this, in their city, we can see their priority, which you placed in their heart for worship, for being led by godly leaders, who were humble and contrite, who had their characters shaped by you. And Father, by those who were attentive to your voice and to your prompting. Lord, we pray for those things for us. Not, Father, for our own benefit, not for our own growth, not for our own um, reputation in this place, but Father, so that we would be faithfully following you and therefore you would receive the glory that you deserve. You would receive the honour and the praise. We would be known as people who fear you more than most. And therefore, Father, your name would flow out from this place and indeed from all of our lives as we live week by week. Oh, we thank you, Father, for the privilege of following you. And we pray, Father, that you would indeed be glorified through our lives and that you'd help us, God, by your spirit to prioritize you. Thank you, Father, that you are indeed the ultimate source of goodness, of joy, of peace, of eternal security. And so we know that you can be trusted. And so we choose, Father, to trust in you. We praise you, God. Amen.